we're trying to deal with complexity that actually exists and we can either face it head on and acknowledge it and have systems that make use of it and make the complexity a benefit, or we can try to ignore it and make the complexity our enemy as we kind of struggle to maintain supremacy on the like one particular way that we happen to think is best for providing this given service. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To view our full catalog, visit our website at nonserviummedia.com. If you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash nonserviummedia. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servian Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and you are listening to the 32nd episode of the show. In our last episode, we spoke with William Gillis about the promise of distributed, fluid networks of trade in a world beyond the trappings of patchwork or endless meetings. This episode explores similar themes, but with different areas of emphasis. Our primary concern in this conversation is the popular tendency to build political models within the confines of territorial control. This impulse is so tempting that even political theorists who oppose states have difficulty resisting it. There are, however, coherent, cooperative models within political philosophy that reach beyond the coercive state and the restrictions of territorial-based governance. Our guest today is here to explore these ideas and more. Here's my interview with Jason Lee Bias. Jason Lee Bias is a fellow at the Center for a Stateless Society. He's also a PhD student in philosophy at the University of Michigan. His academic work focuses on punishment and its alternatives, rights theory, and justice beyond the state. Jason, welcome to the show. Glad to be back. How's it going? You were the very first guest on the Non-Servian podcast, and it's been, I guess, a couple years now. How are you? Yeah, it's been a very strange, eventful couple of years in in the time between then and now. I would say, on the whole, pretty positive. And I think I'm looking pretty positive in the in the near future, so. Cool. Well, what's changed for you personally since the last time we spoke? Yeah, so one big thing that's changed is I am now at the University of Michigan. I think I was at the University of Illinois when we last spoke. Still doing the same kind of stuff, though. Still more or less believe the same things, so... Nothing big really outside of that, just kind of transitioning from one program to another. Cool. Well, as I mentioned in your introduction, we recently spoke with Will Gillis about decentralization, complexity, etc. And I was hoping to just further articulate similar themes with you today. So one thing that all states and many proposed alternatives to it have in common is a focus on territorial-based systems. 
And there are many components to statehood, but one key aspect is that it has coercive control over a given geographical area. A left-wing non-state alternative that still censors geographical control is Bookchin's communalism, we might be able to point out. And a right-wing version might look something like Hoppe's covenant communities. In your opinion, why is there a tendency in political philosophy to focus on territorial-based governance? Yeah, and so it also goes well beyond all that and sometimes crops up in places that it might be surprising for it to crop up, the uh, emphasis on territoriality. So like the most obvious kind of thing is, well, most political philosophers are not anarchists and are not state abolitionists of any kind, and therefore they're going to be looking at something through the lens of territorial monopoly in some extent. And even the ones who are kind of anarchists or state abolitionists, I think the familiarity of state-driven politics probably pushes people to think in terms of territorial monopolies, things like that. But even beyond that, again, like I said, it crops up in some surprising places. So for example, when John Rawls, probably the most famous political philosopher of the 20th century, just basically a something like a general kind of liberal democratic theorist, when he's giving what he considers his ideal theory, which is uh, essentially like what justice would look like in like a perfect society so that we can have like a target to go towards when he's, and that we can think of like, what are the ways in which our society is unjust by comparison, all this, when he's setting up his ideal theory, he assumes a literally closed society as in there is no one leaving or entering the society and the hypothetical society in question, except through birth and death. So there's no exit, no entry. And he's not doing this because he's like a radically anti-immigration. He wasn't an open borders advocate, but he also wasn't someone who believed in no immigration whatsoever. But rather he's doing it because it just kind of simplifies things. So when you don't have to deal with new people coming and going, that simplifies things on the model of a closed society and the ideal theory. And I think that kind of gets to what I think the real answer to your question is of why there is this tendency of theorists to look to territorial-based governance is because it kind of simplifies things. So if you're trying to paint a picture of what the best governance arrangement is, it's probably easiest to think of it in terms of here's this area and this is the governance arrangement in that area. You don't have to deal with accommodating for other things that might be going on that might affect other kinds of governance that might be going on in the same area. You just have to get the one kind there perfect. And so again, if you're trying to paint a picture, it's best to simplify that picture. I think that's why theorists are kind of, I don't want to say inherently, but overwhelmingly tend to drift towards territorial-based governance, even in, strangely enough, the cases that you mentioned of people who are, to some extent, see themselves as state abolitionists, that even they tend to go towards these kinds of territorial models. Yeah, so one of the things that we spoke with William Gillis about, one thing that he kept returning to when we were talking about problems with different systems like this was like, 
well, basically, no one wants to address complexity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's simple enough for us to understand, I think, is the is the, the short answer. Right, right. So what's the what's the fundamental problem with systems that focus on geographical sovereignty? Yeah, I think it's that same thing, actually, that it's simple enough that we can understand it. Okay. The problem is, is that the world is more complicated than that. And it's good to be able to address the co those complications. And also there's the fact that kind of putting all the power in one place tends to make it easier to abuse. So if there's kind of like a large territory that it's understood that the power is just in this one place, all you have to do is to get control of that power. And then you automatically have control over a wide swath of these people's lives. But it's kind of both that normative problem and then also the fact that realistically, even in places that have, uh, even in our existing world with states where there's definite territorial monopoly of some kind, actual day-to-day -day governance is much more complicated to that. And mm -hmm. theorizing just in terms of just the territorial monopoly is going to lose sight of a lot of the things that are going on in day-to-day -day life, the way that people actually regulate their lives, the way that people actually provide goods and services to each other, the way that people actually ensure that their rights are protected, things like that. What does it mean to embrace complexity then? What, what is complexity and why is it important to incorporate it within our theoretical political models? Complexity is difference. Complexity is the way in which people want different things. Sometimes when they want the same things, they want them provided in different ways. Sometimes it will make sense in one context and not another. And sometimes this will all be happening in like more or less the same place. It's not just a regional flavor. It can sometimes be almost an individual difference variation. And one area where we might see this is something like education. So depending on what people want to do in life, depending on what people are seeking out, different kinds of education are going to make sense for them. So I tend to think, and this might seem ironic for someone who is like pursuing an academic career, I tend to think there's probably too much focus in the United States, at least, on the thought that everyone needs to go to college, for example, that everyone needs to have the same basic kind of higher education. And if that's your thought, that everyone needs to have the same basic kind of higher education, then you're going to be cramming a lot of things together and trying to make them similar, the kind of education that, that these different people need in ways that is going to make less and less sense for various different kinds of goals that people have, that people are going to be wasting four years of their life on something that could easily be a two-year program or perhaps something that they could learn by doing rather than kind of sitting in a desk and, and learning that way. And if you're kind of focused on kind of these one-size-fits-all solutions, then you're going to be tempted to just kind of trying to get everyone into college and have everything someone might want to do, have some kind of attempt at college teaching them how to do that. But if you're aware instead that a lot of these things are best taught in 
radically different ways, then you're going to not try to find a one size fits all solution. And you're going to have something that looks like the existing college model for certain things where that makes sense. And then you're going to have very different kinds of educational pursuits for things that make sense in other terms. So part of the thought here is that there just is complexity and we can either have a idea of what education looks like that accommodates for that, or we can kind of pretend that the complexity doesn't exist and keep trying to like shove everyone into the same basic model of education and keep racking up the uh, student debt for people who realistically did not need to go through that except for the kind of cultural assumption that real learning happens in this particular kind of setting. And so that's that's the case even though there's not like literal compulsory monop- compulsory lease sovereignty of the sense of like we don't literally like force every single person to go through college and to some extent that it is definitely allowed obviously for people to not go to college and instead just learn in these ways that are helpful for them it's largely kind of like a cultural compulsion plus kind of like the subsidization of higher education the very specific higher education model and all that and it's kind of the same basic idea extended to other things as well you want to be able to have as many different kinds of provision of a given good or a given service. There's many different kinds of provision of ways of life, I guess, not just goods and services per se, but ways of doing something that all those things are able to accommodate for the different things that people are trying to get out of those things or that people do get out of those things. It's even worse with a lot of the things that the state does, like, for example, dispute resolution, defense, things like that, certain kinds of dealing with common pool resources. It is just kind of artificially, compulsorily limited into it has to be provided in this particular way. And often the ways that people actually need to resolve disputes within their lives often are kind of pushed to the side, either at best not seen as kind of official in the same way, or at worst, literally illegal. And that's kind of the anarchist specific thought about complexity there. But the general point is, again, that we're trying to deal with complexity that actually exists. And we can either face it head on and acknowledge it and have systems that that make use of it and make the complexity a benefit. Or we can try to ignore it and make the complexity our enemy as we kind of struggle to maintain supremacy on the like one particular way that we happen to think is best for providing this given service. And one of those things I think is ultimately going to be a lot more stable and effective than the other, all things considered. What are some other examples of non-state territorial-based systems that may be tempting for anti-authoritarians to embrace? Yeah. So I think you've kind of hit on the main things that I would say on the Bookchin type stuff and the Papa type stuff that gets into the interesting philosophical questions about what constitutes a state. And I would also add to that maybe certain kinds of syndicalist, and I would say certain kinds because this is not a world I'm super familiar with. And I 
certainly wouldn't want to say that necessarily this is always the case, but certain kinds of syndicalist economic models that I've seen, these confederations, federations of delegates and all that, this is highly managed, I guess, trade of a sort between things rather than just kind of allowing economic organization to happen without going through this convoluted process. That seems to be something like that because there's kind of an assumption of supremacy by federations and all that. So there's that. And then this isn't really territorial, but sometimes some market anarchists will talk about defense and dispute resolution as if it's always happening through the same sorts of organizations every time. So this is especially true with like anarcho-capitalists that sometimes they will talk as if every single time that someone steals your TV, that specifically like a for-profit private security agency that goes to a for-profit arbitration agency, and that it goes through that process in order to get your TV back. I want to be clear, I have no problem with that way of addressing those kind of situations. And I don't necessarily think that they do mean that that is always the case, but often the expositions of the idea treat it as if that is like always the case. And I think this might kind of start to lurch into the same kind of problem on the territorial sovereignty, even though it's not territorial, which is limiting the response on something that has an actually like kind of complex array of what is the best way to deal with something into kind of like a one-size-fits-all way of dealing with it, where sometimes if the thief, for example, is someone within your larger social circle, the easier thing to do is probably some kind of like something that's like more, I hate to use this word, but informal kind of social thing rather than actually going through like a for-profit security agency, right? So if you stole my TV, for example, you, Joel Williamson, there's people that we both know who I could get to like reach out to you first and like try to like kind of pressure you to give it back. That's one kind of thing that I think- Look, I just want to say the only reason I stole your TV is because mine wasn't working as far as I could tell you weren't using yours, okay? Oh, that's a fair, that's fair. Then then it's all, all bets are off, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, anyway, so um, I think that similarly, I think a lot of anarchists try to get into these things where they have these simplified models for explaining how something will work without the state, because, I mean, it is kind of a crazy thing to imagine we're talking about something about all these things being dealt with without the state. You feels like you kind of need like, I guess, like FAQ like type answers, like off the top of your head of, well, what will happen if X, Y, Z happens, right? And so you kind of fall into these kind of organizations as if they're handling everything. To some extent, I think that's fine in dealing with like FAQ type questions from people. But it's important to, I think, at least have the caveat that I'm not saying this is always the correct solution, but rather this is a kind of solution that I think will handle the problem. And there are other kinds of solutions that will occur to people as the problem persists and as people have to actually deal with the problem. And so no solution being presented in like kind of an, like an AMA type thing on anarchism is going to be the solution that we must hold to every time. And then I guess one last thing that kind of, puts it back towards 
actual territorial sovereignty is that often anarchists will kind of make tactical endorsements, I guess, of certain kind of democracy or nationalism before getting to anarchism. And I mean, there's some some extent to which, on the democracy at least, where that makes sense when the comparison class is democracy or dictatorship, obviously. But it's important to remember that the anarchists have a problem with any crassy, whether it's autocracy or democracy, right? And so I think it's important to remember that. And then also that they're kind of tactical endorsements of nationalism, not necessarily going all the way into like what's sometimes called national anarchism, which is a whole can of worms there. But even just kind of like supporting certain kinds of like, I guess, like underdog nationalist movements where it makes sense to support people who are being oppressed. But I think it's important to emphasize that the frame we want on those things is not a nationalist framing where a nation has kind of, I guess, a supremacy over its own members and things like that, because then that starts to set up a new form of territorial sovereignty that is exclusive in other ways, if successful, right? So that's kind of some of the anarchist failure modes that might get in the direction of what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So it's probably important to acknowledge that, obviously, we live in a world of finite resources. Some of those resources would probably work best if they acted as commons, I'm thinking of something like a river or a stream, for example. Mm-hmm. That's, in a very real way, limited geographically. Mm-hmm. Do Ostromite systems suffer from similar concerns as the ones that we've discussed to this point? Yeah, so you're talking about Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom there. Eleanor Ostrom being the more famous one, Nobel Prize winner who neither of them were anarchists. A lot of anarchists of virtually every stripe tend to really like Eleanor Ostrom's work. The essence of it being that there are forms of organization beyond either market or state, these kind of like commons arrangements of people kind of regulating something in common, but it's not external regulation from the state, nor is it like one company like that owns it and just lays down the rules for how to deal with say, this river or whatever. And as you're saying, I mean, obviously a river takes up geographical space. And so there's some degree of the territorial monopoly thing or territorial sovereignty thing that you might raise as a as a worry. And I think there's kind of two answers here. So you ask, do Ostromite systems suffer from the same problems? Well, it depends on what we mean by Ostromite, right? So if we just mean something of this sort of this kind of like participatory commons regulation where it's not external regulation through the state and it's also not privatization in the sense of a particular company owns it and just lays down the rules but rather the people using it develop these norms kind of organically i could imagine a situation where this falls into some of the same problem so i've sometimes see some of the social anarchist uses of the ostra or more Eleanor Ostrom as kind of shoving everything into this particular form of management, that everything is a commons of this particular kind. We just divide them up in that way. And every resource is used in this very particular participatory common sense. 
And that, I think, could probably fall into the same problems because it's treating this particular form of social organization as a panacea. But I think it's important to note that that is not really Ostromite in the sense of more in tune with what Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom actually thought. So I think part of the problem here is a lot of people who are familiar with Ostromite stuff are really only familiar with, one, Eleanor, and two, specifically governing the commons, or at least what they have heard about governing the commons, the book that she won the Nobel Prize for. And if you have just that idea, then you can kind of fall into this kind of like everything is like a separate commons type arrangement type model that I think gets very territorial and kind of lacks complexity and all that. But if instead you kind of like put it in the context of of her larger work and their kind of joint project that that very much she saw herself as as engaging in, you see that the overarching idea for the Ostroms is polycentricity, which is kind of like overlapping multiple redundant systems for providing the same services, especially governance for not just commons resources, but just in general. And you can see this in kind of the earliest stuff from the Ostroms, which is Vincent, because he's a bit older. Some of his early writing is kind of rebelling against what he saw as the dominant trend in public administration writing, which is the assumption that combining things is always good, that fracturing services is always bad, that you have to always have clear lines of authority, things like that, kind of a model of public administration that comes from Wilson. And he challenged those assumptions and said, no, that often fracturing the provision of these things, fracturing authority, making it such that no one really has control over the whole system, often ends up being better able to accommodate for the complexity and the kind of the ways I was just saying. And then Eleanor's work is coming out of that, right? It's saying, rather than thinking that everything has to be state managed or everything that looks like a commons arrangement has to be state managed or everything has to be privatized in this very particular way, here's another way that it can handle. And it's important to remember that Ostrom is not saying that everything is a good case for this kind of commons management. So often people will say something like that Ostrom debunked the tragedy of the commons or something like that. And that's true if you mean a very particular thing that she herself emphasizes, which is it's true if the point is the tragedy of the commons, as in an insuperable problem that in all cases. But she does think that sometimes the commons problem is strong enough in a particular scenario that some some other kind of way of dealing with certain resources makes sense, that privatizing it perhaps makes sense in a certain certain case. But she just wants to emphasize that in many cases, much more than people realize that this particular form of organization works. And the point of that, again, is in this larger project of emphasizing polycentricity, multiple ways of doing things. And if you have that as the central idea for Ostromite solutions, 
then it's hard to see how it could fall into the same problem of failing to accommodate complexity because the whole point is to deal with complexity. And yeah, there might be some degree of territorial sovereignty, if you want to use the words that way, over like a particular part of a river or something like that. But that's a very limited kind, right? We usually don't think of territorial sovereignty as being things that are so limited to particular sorts of resources. So I don't think there's a huge problem there. But if you try to shove everything into the same kind of governance, then there could be that kind of problem. Do you have any thoughts on the comedy of the commons? Yeah. Um, so, um, hold on. Right, okay. One, are you, is that a, are you joking? <laughs> yeah, I was just joking. The thing is, is I think that actually is a term. Oh my God. That's so cool. Yeah. So, and then I, and then it just hit me one that I don't remember exactly what it means. And two, that you might be joking. <laughs> yeah. I was just joking. I was just thinking out loud, like where like the three stooges and Eleanor Ostrom meets or something. Yeah, so there are comedy of the commons. I want to say that's cases where basically like this is probably almost certainly oversimplifying and I don't want to like spend time looking it up, but it's something where like basically situations that Ostrom type stuff works super well or maybe even like very loosely regulated or something like that works super well. But so people think of like, I think like uh, especially in kind of non-scarce resources like like i think like the peer-to-peer software type people talk about the comedy of commons type thing but yeah that's that's funny i think that's like an actual term that's hilarious yeah so i um i like almost always get corrected on the pronunciation of eleanor ostrom's name too i always pronounce it ostrom you know i don't actually (laughs) I feel like I should know because I have talked to people like a million times about both Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom, (laughs) including like people who like knew her. And so I've heard people saying it, especially people who would know the correct pronunciation. I guess in my head, Ostrom and Ostrom are like such similar pronunciations that my mind just kind of like clumps them together. So yeah, I just say Ostrom, but I think that's correct. I'm not positive. Sure. All right. Well, language is a commons, no? So, I mean... Yes, that's true. There's different complex ways of pronouncing things. Yeah. And it might suit me to say Ostrom. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. That's the comedy of the commons. All right. Yeah. All right. So, um, can you can you expound a little bit more on how left-wing market anarchism deals with the problem of territorial sovereignty or has a different approach towards it and how maybe how it might overlap with Ostromite solutions? Yeah. So I guess one way to think about it is so often when I hear possible solutions to problems from social anarchists, for example, my reaction is great. Let's do that. But The difference being that I don't think that's like the way to deal with that problem in all cases is just, I think it's good to also have that on our, on our plate, right? For example, kind of the commons governance of the kind we were just talking about, like, that's a great thing to have on our plate for solutions. Similarly, 
mutual aid, I think, is great. That's something that is sorely lacking in this world, and it's something that we should have on our plate. But it's worth noting when we're thinking about mutual aid, mutual aid as has actually existed in history, that the mutual aid societies in like the United States, United Kingdom, that a lot of it has been written about, that kind of provided a non-state welfare society, I guess. I almost said welfare state, but obviously not. Before the emergence of the welfare state, it's notable that, that even those weren't like the one big organization that did everything. They did a lot. They did probably a lot more than most things would do. So they they provided unemployment relief to people. They provided health insurance to people. Their members, they they kind of provided like a community space for their members, all that. But it still wasn't one big organization doing everything. And even the things they did, they didn't really completely do. So for example, I think some of the recent kind of rebirth of discourse about mutual aid on Twitter, for example, has kind of gotten a little bit of a stereotyped view of it, where it's one, very informal, and two, always about like, not always, but typically like direct provision of the thing. And neither of those things are true about historical mutual aid. So obviously the fact we're talking about mutual aid societies shows there were like stable organizations. It wasn't just like your friends Venmoing you when you need money, right? Rather, it's a stable organization that people had regular dues for and things like that. They contributed to their institutions of a certain kind. And those are able to handle a lot more than just the super informal arrangements. And then two, they did not always directly provide the service itself, but often made it easier for you to get the service. So the way that they provided healthcare wasn't that members of, of the lodge or your doctors like gave you healthcare. Rather, they pulled together resources and collectively financed the healthcare by hiring a doctor for the lodge, doctors for the particular lodge, but they themselves were not doing the doctor work. That was the mutual aid society. So this kind of like non-market, non-state organization engaging in the market, right? By financing it and getting the service, making it easier to afford. And that I think kind of indicates the general picture I would see of anarchy, which is this kind of complicated arrangements of sometimes some things are better provided by directly providing the service or kind of like non-market, non-state arrangements, the Ostrom type thing, or sometimes it's better provided in a very straightforward market way. And sometimes different parts of the same thing are better provided by different forms of social organization. Again, so the lodge practice example, the financing of it was mutual aid. But the actual like doctors are in business for themselves. That's a market transaction. It's a conjunction there of something that sounds like a social anarchist solution of the mutual aid and engagement through the market. I think it's that we just have, as long as things don't involve aggression and domination, which of course is a big thing to uh, have as a caveat, but as long as things don't involve aggression or domination, I think it's important to always have different forms of social organization on the table and to not assume that one form is always going to be the superior one 
and that even that one thing is always going to be the superior thing in all parts of the uh, supply chain, as it were, that often one kind of social organization will be best for one thing and another for another part of it. All right. So market anarchists, most market anarchists anyway, would say that it's possible for an individual to legitimately own a reasonable amount of land. Land specifically can be sort of a tricky thing that um, even within market anarchist circles, land can be a tricky thing to figure out how to know what a legitimate property claim is or blah, blah, blah. But I know that for sure you see individual ownership as a legitimate thing when it comes to land. So if it's possible and desirable to legitimately own a homestead, for example, why would Hoppe's covenant communities be any different? Yeah. So first, I think it's worth noting what the Hoppe covenant community is and how it differs from what we might see as like the covenant covenant communities of a particular kind outside of that. So the basic idea that Hoppe starts with is not objectionable, which is first that people can own private property and then two, that people can enter into covenants on their property to some extent. So obviously, I don't think private property is objectionable as an idea. I also don't think that entering into covenants on property is objectionable in and of itself. And that just means that, like, I give you, because you have some interest in what I'm doing with my property, like a limited kind of property right that just, like, allows you to say, hey, you can use your house in all these different ways, but just don't do that. So, for example, if... I don't know. We live in a neighborhood that part of the reason that attracts people to the neighborhood is that it is made to look like an old colonial, like 1600s, 1600s community or something like that. Then it's fine to have like entering it into a restrictive covenant that says that I can't like retrofit my, that I can't fit my house to like look like, like some like, modernist home right so that seems perfectly legitimate to me to enter into that but hoppa wants to get something like way more complicated and like serious out of that than just like those kinds of covenants essentially these kind of like large systems of social regulation just out of these kind of restrictive covenants so infamously he has this footnote with like a paragraph in Democracy the God That Failed, that says something about, uh, I think it's like uh, Democrats, and by that he means like small d Democrats, so people with certain political views, in other words, and then the very strange phrase that he uses of advocates of homosexuality and alternative lifestyles, so advocates of homosexuality and all that are excluded from the covenant community. And that's a very much higher deal of what you are regulating through these restrictive covenants than is common, right? And I think a lot of people focus on the fact, when they're talking about Hoppe critically, I think talk about the fact that the things he wants to get out of those covenant communities are bad. And I certainly agree that they they are. I think, but I think like the specific kind of awfulness of Hoppe, of what Hoppe wants out of it, can sometimes make us lose sight of some problems with like the more general problems with the basic idea of these like super 
complicated kinds of covenant communities. So let's say that you had the same kind of setup of really fierce regulation, but it was through covenants and all that, but it was for things that we might think of as not that bad or much more understandable. Like say it was, I don't know, like we're excluding like fascists, advocates of homophobia and racists and all all other kinds of bigots must be physically removed to preserve the libertarian order or something like that. I still think that would probably one not work and probably like thinking too much into that kind of model for dealing with those problems is not desirable. So the basic problem, I think, independent of Hoppe's particular cultural, what Hoppe wants out of this, the basic problem with the thing in itself is that market society, which is something that Hoppe wants, will necessarily bring different kinds of communities, including very different kinds of moral communities, into contact with one another for purposes of trade. That you're not going to have a market society without regularly engaging people who are radically different from you. In fact, typically the extent of the market that the more people are different from you, the more that they're going to have different modes of organization and things like that, that mean that you're not providing it, you're not doing it yourself, and therefore you're more likely to get something out of trade with them. And so as the market increases in development, then more and more you're going to be involving yourself with people who are radically different from you. And when you come together for purposes of trade, you're going to come together for other purposes as well, right? That people will get to know one another. People will be much more aware of, I don't know, like the entertainment media of people of these different kinds, right? You just can't hermetically seal off the people you think have the good values from the people with the bad values if you're living in a market society. This is like the common critique of market liberalism from kind of like old school European conservatives of like the more kind of like explicitly authoritarian kind, which we're sometimes not familiar with in America, although the last like few years has been kind of becoming more explicitly popular in the United States. The thought is the market is a problem because It has this kind of radically cosmopolitanizing effect. But what I want to note is that even if we even if we make the values in question here good, the radically cosmopolitanizing effect would not be because the people with the cosmopolitan values are being protected from encountering people with more parochial ones. Rather, it's the fact that regular engagement with other people is necessarily going to kind of create more cosmopolitan attitudes. And in order to accommodate for the life you're going to have to be living in a society that's engaging other people like that for purposes of exchange, it's going to have to become a more cosmopolitan society. So the Hoppe kind of fusion of these kind of like hardline reactionary values that are just like totally protected by like just forcing them out, forcing anything else out, just is incompatible with market liberalism of any kind, and especially market anarchy. And there's other complications that I won't really get into here that I think that when you have 
really large swaths of property that are using these more convoluted, complicated ways that that becomes harder to kind of maintain for because of things about the nature of property rights. But I won't get into that here. I say a little bit about that kind of indirectly in my mutual exchange podcast. But something I will say here that you might be interested to hear is that I have kind of a running theory on Hoppe that I've not really seen anyone else say. So he said many times that he used to be a Marxist. This is something that he kind of uses a lot to get a lot of stock out of. And he even has this paper, the one Hoppe paper that some left libertarians like, where he's, it's something like Marxist and Austrian class analysis, where he says that like, that he thinks uh, something about the the Marxist story is right. It's just that they have the classes wrong and or something like that, that it's more Your dialectical material. Yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, exactly. And he says that rather than the classes of who owns the means of production, it's who has a political class and all that. So he's, he talks about the fact that he used to be a Marxist a lot. And I think that his obsession with covenant communities and all that is in a very weird way kind of a lingering effect of that Marxism and then a failure to internalize the market liberalism that he's claimed to adopt. So on some Marxist views and certainly like Leninist views, the social conditions necessary for liberation are deeply fragile. That it's always the case that the capitalist order and all the kinds of domination that come along with that are just going to keep recreating themselves if not like just constantly being stomped out. And for that, you need like a temporary kind of worker state to like keep stamping them out and to like sometimes send people to re-education camps because you just can't, you can't deal with the presence of dissent in that way if you're going to have liberation on this kind of Leninist view. And certainly you're going to wall yourself off from the rest of the world. You're going to put up the Berlin wall, right? You have to wall your people off from the people who are still trapped in the old order, because otherwise that kind of like social pollution is going to corrupt your attempt at progress and at liberation, at socialism, the path of socialism. And so you can't have that. And so it has to be like physically removed, right? And Hoppe kind of takes the same attitude that uh, liberation is liberatory social conditions are fragile and all that. It just has, he just has a very different idea about what liberatory social conditions are and the kinds of things that are threats to it, right? So a libertarian social order for Hoppe just cannot handle people whose values who are, in his view, obviously not in mine at all, out of step with the cultural conditions amenable to libertarianism. And since there's just no way to keep the libertarian social order going with those people included in it, he has these elaborate covenant community structures in order to, one, make sure that no one, even in the privacy of their own home, is doing certain sorts of things and that they're not, uh, certainly not spreading it to the ideas to other people so on and so forth, and that they must be physically removed if they keep advocating these ideas. But I think this loses sight of something that's important about virtually any liberal view, which is that it that liberal institutions and certainly 
ones that take it to the extent of market anarchism, that part of the pitch for it, I think, is that these institutions are uniquely able to accommodate serious diversity. That part of the, the, the pitch, I think, of liberalism is that you don't need to physically remove people to maintain that order, whereas you do need to physically remove people to maintain state communism. You do need to physically remove people to maintain integralism or whatever. You do need to physically remove people to maintain illiberal regimes, but liberalism is unique in its ability to accommodate difference in that, that kind. And I think this is also part of why liberalism and ultimately market anarchism has a kind of a victory in the cards if we don't get blown up by nuclear weapons at some point, which is that because we are uniquely able to accommodate for diversity and serious diversity is the only way that the world really, I think, can keep going, ultimately, the more liberal institutions up to the point of anarchism are just going to be increasingly the only stable ones because they're the only ones that can deal with ostensible enemies living in their midst that no matter how bad small d Democrats are, we are going to be able to accommodate for the fact that in market anarchy, you might have all sorts of weirdos who are reactionaries who want to go back to liberal democracy, but it won't actually matter because market anarchy is able to accommodate for those kinds of things in a way that other kinds of systems aren't. So anyway, all that's to say, one that I think that uh, Hoppe's right-wing deviations from libertarianism or certainly like liberal liberalism, I think are weirdly a kind of like funhouse mirror lingering effect of his Marxism. And that even when we bracket the fact that Hoppe is deeply wrong about what sort of culture best fits libertarianism and market anarchy, he's still wrong about how we should deal with things that we might think actually are incompatible culturally with libertarianism and market anarchy, that we also cannot keep physically removing reactionaries either. So that's kind of my spiel on Hoppe. That's super interesting, and thanks for explaining that. I sort of never took serious, I never really take like right-wingers seriously when they say they used to be socialists or whatever, mm -hmm. because often they think socialists are, you know, they'll interchangeably use Democrats and communists. So it's just like, ah, yeah, they're probably full of shit. But in this case, he probably was a Marxist. Oh, yeah. And if that's true, then yeah, it. I think you have a pretty strong case there. One more thing on that just kind of makes me more confident that his claim to ex-Marxism is like less rhetorical is that he, <laughs> if you actually read some of his writing, like, this is very, so often it will kind of like annoy me in the same specific way that some like continental Marxist writers annoy me, which is like these like sweeping cultural pronouncements of like how these disparate things are connected and just stated as if they're really obvious without like actually defending them. And it reminds me a lot of like some of the kind of more continental type of Marxists kind of the crowd, I guess, that Zizek ultimately comes out of, but it just, but just like radically different views about, about what those are, right? So the writing style, I think, even, even feels like a Marxist. <laughs> well, all right. So uh, yeah, thanks for that.
So not that long ago, Tyler Cowen wrote a piece titled Libertarianism Isn't Dead, It's Just Reinventing Itself. And there was sort of a lighthearted joke going around on Twitter that Ewan Billy Christmas's article titled Methodological Anarchism was the inspiration for Cowan's thoughts in that piece, or something along those lines, at least. And additionally, of all people, Nick Land threw some punches when he commented that Cowan's article was, quote, patchwork neocameralism for normies, but Strassianized. So tracing the Twitter joke back to its origins, how is your work not Strassianized neo-reaction for normies? Yeah, so first of all, I don't know if I, <laughs> I saw anyone joking that he actually read it, just there were some similarities. But there was definitely like people who had read both, I guess. That's kind of funny, the similarities. Because Cowan was, I think the main thing he was advocating there is what he was calling a libertarianism, saying that radical libertarians, at least, should engage more in kind of a politics of projects rather than policies. Trying to build things up outside of the state rather than getting the existing states to kind of change more in directions that we want directly, like through lobbying or writing policy papers that they will then like take into consideration or running for office or anything like that. And then the methodological anarchism paper is exactly saying basically the same thing. We highlight something we call the policy framework, which is kind of a reification of politics into what policies the state has, including like the state's constitution or the particular laws it has, and also seeing justice as just a question of those things rather than justice as a question of all the institutions and practices in society generally, and that politics as being something that is often better an attempt to reform those things or build up those things rather than kind of bypassing the state, as it were, rather than influencing policy. So there's obvious similarities there. For what it's worth, I don't think the neo-reaction thing is a good read of Cowan himself. So Cowan talks a lot about Straussian interpretations and Straussian interpretations in the kind of colloquial sense that he's using it just means like the person is saying one thing apparently, but the apparent reading is just kind of for public consumption or like the random, any random reader, whereas they're intentionally saying it in a subtle way such that some people who they want to hear what they're saying can kind of get something slightly different out of it. So sometimes people will say that like this or that like philosopher back in periods of like of more restrictive laws about religion were actually atheists and they were giving these what like apparent arguments for the existence of god that were like so obviously dumb or like the god that it was that it was like giving an argument for was so limited that really there's a straussian interpretation here where they're actually promoting atheism that's the kind of idea and so some people nick land being probably the most prominent since he is prominence within the neo-reactionary world in general will sometimes say this about Cowan, that I really don't think the neo-reactionary thing is a good read of Cowan himself. And the reason I will point to that just super briefly is if you listen to the Conversations with Tyler episode with Garrett Jones, 
who is an academic, has a book titled 10% Less Democracy, is also like a little bit critical of open borders, stuff like that. Someone that probably, if if neo-reactionaries are going to like an academic, would probably like him. Cowan opens that podcast episode by just bluntly asking him a series of questions about like, basically like, suppose that a corporation were to own a government and just like have all policy set for the interests of its board of directors. Why would that be bad? And just like presses him to like give like basically without ever actually naming it. It sure sounds like the purpose of that episode, or at least the first chunk of it was to get a criticism of basically the neo-reactionary model, which is very funny and interesting. So I had a Straussian interpretation of that episode, which was that those questions were intentionally set up to like get someone who neo-reactionaries would probably like to lay out the problems with it. And I think, incidentally, I think the stuff Jones says are the right ones, where he says that it would that they might even end up bringing back slavery because if the interests are just the interests of the board members, I okay, I won't get into that. But anyway, so I don't think it's true of Cowan, but. It's certainly not true of our paper because the politics of projects, if you want to call it that, using Cowan's language, in our paper is not the same kind of politics at all that a neo-reactionary would like. And so when I think of neo-reactionaries, I think of this kind of patchwork neo-cameralism governance system because the idea we're getting out is grounded in polycentricity. And... So, so again, polycentricity, both in acknowledging the polycentricity in the world, how it actually operates, and in building institutions and practices without any illusion that some given institution or practice, like the state and its laws, is the unique location of justice or the one big lever that we need to pull in different ways to deal with this or that problem. So the policy framework, as, as we're thinking of it, you might think of as kind of a complementary thing of technocracy. So that's kind of the target that we're going against in this paper, that we just need this one big lever, this one particular kind of institution or practice that we can tweak to fix society's problems. And really, if you think about it, the basic neo-reactionary idea, which again, I would take to be the idea of a literally private government, mm-hmm. is still a monopolistic territorial government often explicitly pushing for greater and greater bureaucracy just of the right kind. It's important to remember the term neocameralism comes from Moldbug or Yarvin, whatever you want to call them, like pushing for an idea that mirrors the late 19th century German state, which is an extremely technocratic, extremely bureaucratic system. Incidentally, weirdly enough, the same kind of system that progressives like Wilson idealized in the United States. So I think this is something that people are not getting enough is that neo-reactionaries, incidentally, this is a little bit of a tangent from your question, but I'll say this quickly. Neo-reactionaries are basically just 19th century, early 20th century progressives with like edgy blogs. And um, they have the same, they have the same basic picture of the world Mm -hmm. and governance and economics and all that. Okay, maybe not economics, but the same basic picture of governance Mm -hmm. that you need greater and greater technocracy with the right elites involved to like kind of just fix 
society very rationalistically. And what we're advocating here, and this will bring it back to your question, uh, what we're advocating here is kind of the opposite of that, right? So one, you don't have this territorial monopoly that would also be the case in these neo-reactionary like Sov Corps or whatever. Instead, you have a bunch of different people trying to handle the situation and you get as many hands on the situation as possible. And it's typically often solutions coming from people actually on the ground. So for example, the one way of dispute resolution that would be, especially among like tight-knit communities, be something like restorative justice. So that's coming from the people on the ground. It's not kind of being imposed upon them from like the corporation that rules the area just laying down the rules. It's a very participatory process. And that is the opposite of the idea of the neo-reactionary model. And again, like these Ostromite type solutions that are also like the governance emerging from people actually dealing with the commons who are actually using it rather than external regulation, either by the state or some private corporation here in this case, the same thing. And so really, I don't think the neo-reactionary stuff would be a libertarianism projects instead of policies. So first of all, because I think it's, I think at least it's um, even, even when it might've sounded like it more in like 2006 or something, I don't think neo-reactionary stuff is a libertarianism at all, but even beyond that, it's not a politics of projects. It is a politics of policies. It just seeks to put the big policy lever elsewhere. They want the the big lever that you use, big technocratic lever that you use to just tweak society to be located in a private boardroom rather than in Congress or rather than in an Oval Office or whatever. They just want it to be in a boardroom. But it's the same basic idea of a politics that is perpetually about policies rather than projects because the politics of projects needs the ability for people to actually start projects to deal with the situations on the ground in front of them and to not rely on some kind of external government to do that. Yeah. All right. So speaking of, you've told me in private that you've become increasingly motivated to focus on neo-reactionary proposals as a point of opposition to your politics. Why is that? Yeah, so first I want to—I would want to clarify a little bit about what I would mean. I think that's a, a reasonable interpretation of what I said, but I think I do want to clarify it a little bit, mm-hmm. which is I'm certainly not writing like academic papers about neo-reactionaries or something like that. One, because at least not openly, as far as I know, that's not like a thing that is like within like the sphere of academia. But also, it's kind of neo-reactionary stuff proper, as far as I can tell, seems to be like very dead compared to, I don't know, like even like a few years ago. But I think it is important to think about ideas that come from, and I say this, this is at least true of some of our ideas too, not as much, but but this is at least true of our ideas too, come from kind of like random weirdos rather than academics per se. 
I think it's still worth worth considering those things because often those are still going to be points in logical space, as it were, and things worth considering in the sense that even if it's not really like worth considering the new reactionary stuff as a live proposal to that we might want to sign on to and then thinking about whether or not we want to or not, I think it's important to get a statement of those ideas by someone who actually believes them. And then you can kind of see what ideas lead to those ideas and see what about your own ideas might need to make adjustments in order to make clearer why that is not the correct conclusion. I would kind of make the comparison with the way that the rise of actual out and out like state socialism was very important for the development of market liberal economics and certainly in the 20th century. So when you read something like like Adam Smith or a lot of the other early liberals, there's not a lot of discussion of the idea of state socialism because that either was not really an idea in the air or like not really like something that was making serious traction. They're critiquing the ideas that were on the ground in their time. And because of that, I think sometimes ideas can get a little bit simplified. So certain ideas about the way that prices work, that if you think that the way prices work in a certain way, then it seems like economic calculation should be possible in socialism. But the Mises and Hayek picture in trying to to say why state socialism would not, like any kind of market abolitionist socialism would not work with a calculation problem, end up illuminating some very important things about how prices work. And I think, to, to pull it back here, I think a lot of the emphases of 20th century libertarianism in fighting against state socialism, for example, and the problems with that can start to make us think, kind of lose sight of the reasons that neo-reactionary stuff or something like neo-reaction, like the idea of a literally private government, is in many ways the opposite of libertarianism. That there's kind of increasingly, increasingly the thought of, well, private is good. All these benefits of private property, which are definite benefits, obviously, I'm big booster of private property, but kind of shoehorning everything into that as a solution. Then you might start to wonder, okay, well, if you can't get anarchism, then why would a private government not be the solution? If private, all this other stuff is the right is the right thing, then why not this? And I think having kind of the idea of a private government advocated by people actually believing it can kind of be a bouncing off point to spell out some of these pieces of libertarianism and market anarchism and all that that I think might have been missing when the possibility that someone might actually take things in that direction was not really on the mind. So I think it's kind of reinvigorating our awareness of the importance of certain kinds of like participatory engagement with politics and things like commons, the importance of the commons, things like that. Again, tying it back to the Ostroms. So the kinds of trends in public administration that Vincent Ostrom is rebelling against are exactly the same kinds of trends that early 20th century progressives like Wilson got out of the same German political thought that Yarvin 
for example, is trying to build off of the new reactionary stuff. The ultra bureaucratic, non-participatory stuff is worth criticizing on its own. And it's not just when it's people who also have these other economic ideas that we might think are, uh, that libertarians might think are not great. It's the idea itself is a part of the problem. And I think getting really clear about why neo-reactionary proposals are wrong and bad, and I mean that separately. So like one, why that's like not normatively good or desirable. And then also like why it wouldn't even get to like what they want, which is just like the hyper-efficient governance, why it would actually be very inefficient. I think that kind of thing would help to build a much greater libertarianism. Yeah. One thing we usually like to explore on the show is how one might go about making their desired utopias come to fruition. Now, I know you don't think that anarchy is simply an end, but in what way is market anarchy relevant beyond an exercise in theory? Yeah. So I think part of the answer to that is why exercise in theory matter, which is it gives us a picture of what we're aiming at. So we know like what things about the current world do we think are the problems. So sometimes anarchists talk about building the new world in the shell of the old. It helps us to see what things are the new world we're building and what things are the shell of the old that we need to get rid of, right? So yeah, what things are, are we wanting to keep about the existing world? What things are we not wanting to keep about the existing world? But also I think having the idea that ultimately what we really what we really need is not a better version of the state. What we need is not a better version of liberal democracy, but rather maybe taking some of the ideas inherent in liberal democracy against liberal democracy to something without the state in general. That gives us reason to embark on uh, politics of projects, as it were, and to ev- evade the policy framework to obviously know that like what the state does matters, but ultimately what we're looking for is something is to build something outside of the state that what we're looking for is trying to find ways of dealing with problems, even ones that appear to be dealt with in a certain way by the state. Now finding, okay, how should we actually deal with that? That ultimately we're trying to build something other than the state And so we need to basically start building it. And we shouldn't be looking at it as we need the one big blueprint because it's not like we're going to have a constitutional convention and like just build up all the pieces at once. Rather, we just start building up all the pieces now whenever we see something that might look like a good piece. So I think that also kind of speaks to a different model of of politics and that it's not electoralism and it's not even revolution because if you just overthrew the government then it's not again it's not like you're going to have a constitutional convention the stuff needs to like already be there and so i think it gives us a reason for more prefigurative politics cool i love it okay so just like the first time you came on the show we like to do towards the end of these interviews a lightning round where I list a series of 
people or ideas and have my guests respond to each item in one minute or less. Are you down to do it this time as well? Sure thing. All right. After that, we'll go to some listener questions and then the actual end of our conversation. Okay. Great. All right. The first item is Adam Smith. All right. Yeah. So I think there's kind of two mistakes people make about Adam Smith, both of them very annoying. So like the kind of older one that you don't really see as much now is this thought that comes from like a very cartoon view of a very cartoon view of the wealth of nations where the thought is that Adam Smith thought that helping other people was bad and that pure narrow self-interest got us all the good things that we should promote that. Anyway, that's something more like some certain other thinkers, but it's obviously not the case when you see the theory of moral sentiments where the whole thing is about the importance of other regarding concern and things like that. But then this has caused this other kind of annoying interpretation where people will say, look at the theory of moral sentiments and say, look, Adam Smith isn't can't be the free market guy that you thought he was because he thinks helping people is good. But I think a serious uh, academic treatment of him has to take stop of why both the kind of like egalitarian benevolence focused Adam Smith, the theory of moral sentiments and the free market Adam Smith of the wealth of nations are very much there and why they are not at odds, but that he sees them as one continuous strain. All right. The second item is Willie Nelson. Yeah. So Willie Nelson is great. I listen to shotgun Willie every morning for several months when I was living in Atlanta and I think Red-Headed Stranger is great and everything, but it's since it's kind of like a concept thing and everything, it's good to listen to on its own. But in terms of just listening, just to listen to some music, I think Shotgun Willie is definitely the one to go with. <laughs> All right. Hegel. I have not read more than about 25 pages of Hegel, and I live in fear of the possibility that I might need to read more. And I think I probably, probably do. <laughs> That's great. All right, next item, second to last, academic freedom. I think that it's something that people need to take a lot more seriously. And even the people who do very loudly take it seriously, I think have a problem of kind of lapsing when the people in question are people from their kind of political outgroup. And I think uh, there needs to be needs to be more consistency on it. Last item, The Twilight Zone. Yeah, I'm really upset that it's uh, off Netflix now because I was watching it pretty much every other night uh, just as something to watch before bed. Same. I like the way, the way of like going into another world in kind of two different ways. One, the actual like... A scenario of each episode and then also kind of the world of like the 1950s and 60s when it's when it's being recorded there's kind of like two just kind of interesting windows into other worlds to consider when you're watching it also one thing i'll say is so i think a lot of, so the the jordan peele twilight zone that came out the the recently so a lot of people watched the first season and said well that's garbage i don't want to watch any more of it and I will totally agree that the first season of the Jordan Peele Twilight Zone is garbage. But if if you have that reaction and haven't watched the second season, I highly recommend watching the second season. 
of the, of the new the new Jordan Peele Twilight Zone because the new the second season is actually very good. Cool. I haven't seen either season, so just go straight to the second. <laughs> all right, all right. So let's do two listener questions, and then we'll finish this thing up. The first listener question is: What does radical liberalism have to say about the future of work? Yeah. So I guess. A lot of the normal left libertarian things that it's good for there to be more cooperatives and more kind of like self-employment, all that kind of stuff. And that the state, the way that it, the way the regulatory world that it creates kind of artificially pushes us into overwhelming dependence on particular kind of hierarchical top-down relationships. But I would also say, I think it's important to not get too hung up on particular models of alternatives and all that because I think more important is that there are a lot of alternatives for people to to choose from and that it's a real robust choice that it's not technically the case that that you could you could find some cooperative to work at but it's a real live choice for example and I think it's more important that there are a live swath of choices than any particular model is important. The second question is, how can I get a cappuccino in your imagined political utopia? Yeah, so probably just about however you want to get it. You could just go to a coffee shop and get one. You could make it yourself. You could get it from a friend. You could get it at some kind of community center. As many ways as you can think of getting a cappuccino are probably ways that you can get it. All right. Cool. Well, thanks for all that, Jason. Moving to the actual end of our conversation here, where should folks go to follow you and your work? So I have a Twitter, which is just my full name. Then also, I guess the only website would be my author page on c4ss.org right now. I should probably have an academic website, but I don't have one yet. I guess that's it. What are some of the best resources for folks interested in further investigating some of the things we've discussed today? I guess one thing to say would be it would be good for people to actually read the Ostroms. So so it's good to read Governing the Commons, but read more than just Governing the Commons. Other things that Eleanor Ostrom wrote and then also read stuff from Vincent Ostrom. And I will say Vincent Ostrom very much not a good writer and so it can be a little bit difficult to get through but very rewarding if you if you do do that because i think a lot of people have a very incomplete image of the ostroms and certain kinds of anarchist circles and i think it would be good to develop that further all right is there anything i forgot to ask you about that you'd like to touch on before we end the interview um not particularly but could i ask you one question please yeah What's something that you think would be a really important, something, something that you think would be a really good kind of project for some libertarian or anarchist or whatever to do that you have not seen anyone doing? And this can be something that, like, uh, that you don't have the expertise for. So, for example, a friend of mine is kind of involving himself in the DIY gun community, but kind of focusing on ammunition or something like that instead of the normal gun stuff. What's something that you think 
is kind of an underserved thing in kind of direct action politics, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, well, sort of in line with what you were saying earlier about building the new world within the shell of the old and creating those alternatives that would act as the new norm after abolition mm-hmm. is an attractive idea to me. And police abolition is on everyone's mind mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Uh, like a normal person's concern is, well, who defends my stuff? Who comes during emergency situations and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. I think I would like to see a cooperative defense model being built right now mm-hmm. that acts as not only as something that people can opt into immediately, but also acts as a model for that which gets us from here to there. Mm-hmm. And, like, ideally, these would be polycentric, right? So they would not be territorial-based, just as we've discussed, although they would be able to take advantage of local knowledge, right? hmm Yeah. And you would have, as Nathan Goodman talks about, like, tiered response systems, so it wouldn't be, like, treating everything like a nail, you know? Yes. Like the police do, you know, they, like... What's the expression, like, treating everything like a nail? When, when you're a hammer, everything is a nail? Yeah, when you're a hammer, yeah. So, like, taking, like, understanding the complexity of the situation, having tiered response systems, and just, like, a plethora of models that act as defense. I would like to see that popularized. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I think is actually extremely relevant and very important. I totally agree. I, I would 100% probably give the same answer. Wow. And I asked that because I want to note that people have different skill sets and I am best at thinking and talking about this kind of stuff, but the people who are probably going to do the most in making things we want to happen happen are not me in in this kind of stuff, but rather people who are actually able to build these kind of things that we're talking about. And people should stop looking to theorists, for example, to just provide them exactly the right model before trying to do things. Because often those are going to be things that you learn only through the process of doing. And I want, I would like people to take advantage of their skill sets that I do not have more so that we could get more out of that, I guess. Mm-hmm. For sure. Make it stigmergic. It's going to take, yeah, it's going to take some brave people to, to start that sort of thing and to consider how that sort of thing might become authoritarian to Yes, exactly. And, you know, defense specifically is like in a interesting situation of being like one very important, but also uniquely susceptible to authoritarianism, maybe. Oh, yeah. You know, so. Yeah. 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 And I, I think also a lot of that kind of stuff, even at like at a theoretical level. So obviously theorizing about this stuff is important. Otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. But I think a lot of the most important stuff to gain out of theorizing about it is going to come, well, does come through experience, you know, uh, that our understanding of what is and is not an authoritarian model of doing things. Some of that we can know beforehand, but a lot of it, we can only really see through seeing what actually emerges from different sorts of models. Totally agree. Thanks, Jason. I think we can leave it there. Great. Jason Lee Bias, for the second time on the show, you have killed it once again. Thank you. Thank you. 
All right, we'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks. Bye. There it is, folks. I hope everyone enjoyed this installment of the show. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out our full catalog at nonserviamedia.com or at youtube.com slash nonserviamedia. And make sure to subscribe to receive notifications each time we release a new episode. If you're interested in seeing this project continue, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash nonserviamedia. And if you can't contribute financially, you can help us out simply by liking and sharing this episode. As usual, shout out to our existing patrons. Your support helps us reach a larger audience and helps keep this project going. Finally, be sure to keep an eye out for the next episode. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.